All right, let's play. Are you ready? This past Sunday, we were looking at Philippians chapter 2. And at the beginning of Philippians chapter 2, Paul drops this tiny little phrase that would be very easy for us to just pass over and ignore. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, united with Christ, the theology of union is central to Paul's whole theological framework. It's one of the most important theological principles in all of the Bible. It's the grid through which Paul, one of the greatest theological thinkers who ever lived, it's part of the grid that he used to think about who Jesus was, what Jesus accomplished, and who we are in the new kingdom of God, union with Christ. So what I want to do today is I want to use some of our theological tools to engage with that phrase. If you have any encouragement with being united with Christ. Now, the first tool that we can use is a tool called a word study. We can say, okay, united with Christ. What's that word in the original language? Now, most of you may realize this, and many of you may have never heard this, but the Bible wasn't originally written in English. Jesus didn't speak English. Paul didn't speak English. They weren't aware that English would be a thing. Uh, They wrote in Aramaic and Hebrew and Greek. Paul especially wrote in Greek, some wild, dense, common Koine Greek. And his Greek is really fascinating. And in this section, you get to see a really cool twist in the Greek language. Because when Paul says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, that word united with is actually just a small Greek word, in. In. We would transliterate it to E-N. If you have any encouragement from being in Christ, in Christ appears over and over and over again throughout Paul's theology. It's very important to him. And he uses it in a whole bunch of different ways. I do my word studies through a website called studylight.org. You can click and click and click and find an interlinear Bible. And you can look up Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, and see what that is in the original Greek. See an English translation next to it. And then click on the Greek word and see where it's used in other places in Scripture. When you do this, you circle around and you say, All right, how else does Paul use this word in in Philippians? You want to look at the immediate context. And there's some really fascinating things that you see. Uh, One of the most fascinating, I mean, there are like six or seven in the immediate context of Philippians. But one that I want to point out is there's this passage that Jaime talked about in this past week's message, where it says that, that we are to work out our salvation because God is at work in us, in us. It's that same word that God is at work in us. And so we are in Christ. Paul uses the same word to describe how we are in Christ, to describe how it is that God is at work in us. So is it possible that we are at work in Christ? That the work that you're doing today is happening in some mysterious way in Christ? When you wake up today, when you go to work today, 
When you wash the dishes today, when you call a friend today, when you pray today, when you serve someone today, when you offer forgiveness to someone today, when you honk your horn at someone today, when you go to the bank today, when you eat today, when you go to the bathroom today, when you greet a child or a grandchild or a neighbor today, all of this is happening in Christ if you are in Christ. It's mysterious to us how God is at work in us. We can't always see it or put our finger on it. And yet, if you look over the long term, you see that actually God has been transforming us. He has been healing us. He has been changing us. I've been telling people recently that I am as physically, emotionally, and spiritually healthy as I've ever been. And that's not something that I can take credit for. You know, I can talk about my physical health, and that's much more due to the intervention of Dr. Fung over at the UNC Pittsburgh Clinic and to my friends Tim Hayes and Sean Hartsock, who've just been great health coaches for me. My emotional health is way more due to the work of a therapist who's been helping me, to Amy, who's been helping me set boundaries, to Alex, who's been a great boss. My spiritual health. This is due to God's intervention in my life. He is at work in me, and I am in him. My ministry takes place in him. And I wonder, in some mysterious way, if the way God is in the world is shaped by who we are in him, how we live, what we do. It certainly shapes his witness, the witness that goes out about him in the world. Now, he is not completely reliant on us. He retains his independence. As Karl Barth said, God is the being who loves in freedom. He is fully and completely free. And yet, and yet he has chosen in his divine wisdom and mercy to attach himself to us, to attach his reputation to us. I love it when people say, you know, I've known a lot of Christians over the years, but when I'm getting to interact with people at Chatham Community Church or as I'm getting to interact with you, you don't seem like them. Sometimes I can see the look in their eyes as they reevaluate who God is because they're seeing something different about God in our community. I love that. I love that God has called us to be his witnesses. That's part of what it means to be in him. That's one thing that I got out of a word study. If you ever want to dig deep into scripture, that's a great place to start, is to take a verse, go to the Interlinear Bible, which is available for free on studylight.org. Shout out to them. They're not paying to advertise on this. Hey, Alex, we should have asked them if they would you know, toss us some shekels in exchange for this. Go to studylight.org. Go to the Interlinear Bible. Look up the verse. And then just click around. Click on the Greek words. Look at the word frequencies. Look at where they're used other places in the Bible. Paul uses this word in over and over and over and over again. In ancient Hebrew thought, they didn't have the ability to put words in bold or italics. They didn't have exclamation marks. And so one of the things that the Hebrew poets did was to emphasize things by repeating them. You see this in Jesus' ministry, you see this in David's poetry in the Psalms, and you see this in Paul's writing. 
When a biblical author repeats something over and over and over again, they're trying to tell you that it's important. It's the same thing that happens in my home. Today, Lucy ran upstairs saying, I need my mini, I need my mini, I need my mini. She wanted to take Mickey, Minnie, no, not Mickey. She wanted to take Minnie Mouse with her on her adventures today. And she had left Minnie up in the bedroom. And so she had to run up the stairs and she kept saying, I need my Minnie, I need my Minnie, I need my Minnie. I wonder if it's the same thing that we do when we walk into the kitchen saying, I'm here to get ice cream, I'm here to get ice cream, I'm here to get ice cream. We don't want to forget what we walked into the kitchen for. The thing that's important to us gets repeated over and over and over again. For Paul, this concept of union is really important. So you can do a word study. You can look at the immediate context. You can spiral out to the broader context. When I read in Ephesians, I see Paul talking about this idea of union in some very powerful ways. Now, it's a little bit different from how he talks about union when he talks about talks about it in Philippians, but it's the same word and he's doing some of the same theological work. Ephesians, as I'm going to teach in a course this summer, is, in my opinion, the centerpiece of Paul's theology. When you read Ephesians, you see Paul working as a theologian, not primarily working as a counselor to churches in crisis. Most of his other letters are written with those agenda in mind. Philippians, is a thank you letter to the Philippian church. Romans is a letter encouraging racial unity and generosity towards missions. Uh, Galatians is a challenge to return to the gospel. His letters to Timothy and Titus are are advice-giving letters to young men in ministry. His letter to Philemon is a challenge against the institution of slavery. Ephesians, as I read it, is Paul working as a theologian. And as a perhaps amateur theologian myself, I really value watching him work. And so in Ephesians, this concept of union with Christ, for Paul, it creates change in us and new possibilities in the world. That we once were divided from each other and from God. We were separated from God, according to Paul, because of our sin, because of our brokenness, because of the deadness inside of us. But because of God's great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. Just as Jesus is raised from the dead, those who are in him are also raised spiritually to new life in the here and now. Not new life in the afterlife, but new life now. Life that starts now and goes on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Sorry, that was my best, like, Taylor Swift. I don't do a good Taylor Swift impersonation. I don't think Paul would either, although he would absolutely like Shake It Off. He would love Shake It Off because it's an anthem written for Paul. Union with Christ. Just as Jesus died and rose again, we who are in him rise with him into new life, new victory. We were separated not only from God, but also from each other. We see this in the lines of tribalism, the lines of political battling, the lines of racism in our own communities. 
We see this when there are people in our community here in Pittsburgh who want to tear down a statue and others who want to tear down the people who want to tear down the statue. Wherever you stand in that conversation, the threats of violence on both sides show that there is a deep divide in our community. This divide exists also between developers who are wanting to put in Chatham Park, who are wanting to cut down trees in order to do it, and conservationists who are wanting to stop all of that, ignoring the past of development here in Chatham County. And some of the things that both sides say about each other are not charitable. They're not kind. They're not neighborly. This happens to all of us. It lives in my own heart, this division between me and others. It's only as I am united with Christ, as I am in Christ, that I discover the capability to cross those barriers. One way of viewing it is something I I heard from Charles Spurgeon years ago. He was a preacher in the 1800s in England, and he asked this question in one of his sermons. He said, do we have any fear of being lost if we are in Christ. And he said, no, no. He said, imagine that you take my fingers and you say, I'm going to drown your fingers. I'm going to drown your fingers. I'm going to take your fingers and I'm going to put them underwater and I'm going to hold them there for 10 minutes. And then you ask the person who threatens you in this way and say, well, are you going to leave my head above water? And that person says, yes, of course, I don't have the power to take your head below the water. I'm only going to drown your fingers. You would say, well, there's no threat there. There's no worry there. You can't drown my fingers. If my head is above water, my whole body is safe. Our head, Jesus Christ, the one who we are united, we're part of his body. We are his fingers and his toes and his arms and his elbows. His head is above water. His head is above death. His head is above sin. His head is above disease. His head is above division. His head is elevated, ascended into heaven, and seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from that place of security, we who are united to him are also secure. This gives us this new capability for connection. Because my right hand is connected to my left hand because it is part of my body, because it is in me. A long time ago, I heard a comedian named Mitch Hedberg who pointed out this great little linguistic thing. He said, why do we call it corn on the cob? That's how it comes. We should call it corn. And then the stuff you get in the can would be corn off the cob. That would be like like taking my arm and calling it Mitch and looking at me and saying, hey, that's, that's Mitch altogether. And there's this beautiful thing because who Jesus is in the world now is him united with us. In fact, there's no way to separate Christ from us. He doesn't want to be associated with the world without us. He has chosen to make us his hands, his feet, his arms, his elbows. He has chosen to identify with us and for us to be in him. This is a powerful privilege and a challenge to us to learn what it means to be in him. 
Some of us over the years have been asking questions. What does it mean that God is in me? What does it mean to walk with the Spirit? What does it mean that God himself, the perfect creator, God of the universe, has chosen to make his dwelling in us? Well, Paul challenges us with the phrase like we're looking at today to reflect on what it means for, that, that we are making our dwelling in God. God in us, us in God. God in us, us in God. If you spiral beyond Paul's theology into the broader Bible, which is a great next step, start with the word you're looking at, expand to the context of the verse and the passage that it's in, expand to other writings by that biblical author, and then zoom out to the broader biblical content. If you look at this theology of union, you see another place where it's highlighted in a very meaningful, beautiful, powerful way. Paul gives us a key to this in Ephesians chapter 5 when writing about marriage, when he writes about husbands and wives being united together, a head and a body, not as a power differential, not as a boss and an employee, but as one new flesh. This is how things were created from the very beginning. God, from the very beginning, designed men and women in marriage to come together and to be united to each other and to become one flesh. And they remain their distinctiveness. The man in marriage is still a man. The woman in marriage is still a woman. There are still unique, distinctive, beautiful, strong things about each of them. But there's also this mysterious union that happens when you're married to someone. There's a mysterious union that happens when you are in partnership with someone over a long period of time, and it grows. My experience of union with Amy is different today than it was a long time ago when we first got married. We understand each other better. I got home from a meeting last night at 1 o'clock, and I knew Amy would want to know what we talked about, but I also knew that she was asleep as we were talking. She didn't sound asleep, but she was asleep. And so I knew to save the most important stuff for us to discuss this morning. That sort of mutual knowledge is part of the experience of union that grows over time as you're in relationship with someone. There's this other union that happens where you hurt when the person is hurt. When Amy was in the hospital and in surgery, she was... Uh, anesthetized, and I probably should have been too. I was really worried about her. I was concerned. I was in pain. I was so grateful that Russ Taylor came to the hospital with me and sat there with me and distracted me and went to Starbucks with me, and which is like the greatest Starbucks in the universe, that Starbucks there at the UNC hospital. Amy was in pain, and I was in pain. Because we are united with each other. She shares in my sufferings and I share in hers. And if that's true for my wife, and if that's true for me, how much more is that true for Jesus? How much more is that true for those of us who are in Christ? He shares our suffering. He has chosen to be identified with us. 
In Philippians chapter 2, Paul uses that word, that in word, to describe that Paul, that, that Jesus, who was in very nature God, also was found in likeness a man. That he was in God and he became inhuman for us. Not inhuman as in like less than human, but inhuman like, like, uh, infamous, like more than famous. He became human with us. It's a beautiful, wonderful, magnificent thing that Jesus has united himself to us, that he has taken that initiative. He has pursued us, chased us down though we were running away, brought us back to life though we were dead, infused us with new beauty, new power, new grace, new strength, new potential. And he did this because he loved us. He didn't do all of this just to leave us. No, he is in us and invites us to be in him. Theology should always, always, always lead us to worship. My friend Dean Miller years ago taught me this phrase. He said, theology leads to doxology, which leads to praxis. So the science of God, thinking about God, leads to right worship, which in turn leads to ethical behavior, good behavior. Our praxis flows from our doxology. Our doxology is shaped by our theology. Thinking about this idea that we are united with Christ, that we are in Christ, it changes the way we see the world. And as we praise Jesus that we have been found in him, that we have that security, that we have that relationship, that we have been beloved by him, that we are beloved by him, that we are and always will be loved by him. That at the deepest center of us, no matter what anyone else says of us, that we are loved. Do you hear that? That we are loved by Christ, the creator, master of the universe, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. This one, with all of this power, is the same one who loves us, who has compassion on us, who lifts us like a mother lifts a child, who cradles us in his arms, who shares with us not only the gospel of God, but his very life. He's worth praising. When Maggie and Michelle and Mark and Caitlin lead us in worship, they're doing the right thing. He is worth praising. He is worth singing songs to. He's worth singing songs even if you don't know all the words. He's worth singing songs to even if you don't like the music. He's worth singing songs to because our emotions need to be involved in the praise of one who is so praiseworthy. And our theology, which shapes our doxology, ultimately shapes our praxis, how we are in the world. What could you do if you believed that you were in Christ, that he is worth worshiping, that he is good, that he is great, that he is gracious, that he is compassionate, that he loves not only you, but also your neighbor? What could you do with that security? Could you stand up against persecution? Yes, you could. Could you have compassion on someone for whom no one else has compassion? Yes, I think so. 
Could you speak your truth when no one else wants to hear it? Could you speak the truth to power? Could you speak the truth in love? Could you speak the truth with courage, with boldness, without shrinking or shying away from it? Yes, absolutely. Because you are in Christ and he is the truth. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And if you are in him, you can speak the truth too. You become a truth speaker. And the world desperately needs that. Our community desperately needs that. When people are locked in these gridlocks oppositionally, it's, it's our side versus their side. A truth speaker who comes in and says, there's a third way. A truth speaker who comes in and says, there's another way to look at this. A truth speaker who comes in and says, there can be peace if you're willing to be humble. A truth speaker who says, there can be justice if you're willing to be held accountable. A truth speaker who says, there can be love if you're willing to be loved. That's who you could be. That's who you are if you are in Christ. So how does one get to be in Christ? This union with Christ happens as we have faith in him, as we depend on him, as we place our trust in him. Now, ultimately, that happens as we trust him for our salvation, as we trust him to rescue us from the brokenness inside of us, as we trust him to heal us, as we trust him to bring us to new life, to elevate us to a different spiritual realm as we trust him to change us, as we trust him to give us purpose. But perhaps for some of us, that's too big a step. Maybe it's too big a step today to trust Jesus with your soul and your destiny. Maybe you need to trust him with your finances. Maybe you need to trust him with a little bit of your time. I was talking to a friend recently about taking a 10-minute break to go outside and enjoy nature in the midst of a busy work day and to trust that Jesus who has designed us to need breaks from work, that he will make things okay at work for her. I believe that I I really do. I trust him. And yet it's hard. I know. Maybe start with something small. Maybe it will change you. Maybe it will change the world. Friends, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, 